0: So this afternoon's reading is Matthew 21, verses 1 to 17. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what they what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there.
1: When Jesus rides these donkeys into jerusalem he's bringing with him all the longing of the old testament scriptures because he rides in to be his people's king that's what these first nine verses of the reading uh, we've just read are all about the the donkey and, and its cult Uh, the crowds crying out and laying down their coats on the road and and cutting branches and laying them on the road in front of him. It's all about Jesus coming to be their king. Uh, He gives his uh, instructions to his disciples in verse 2 and 3. Very explicit instructions, aren't they? Uh, Go ahead to the village in front of us, bring back a donkey and its colt. And when he rides that donkey and and its colt along the road, It fulfills a 500-odd-year-old prophecy from the Old Testament. It says that there in verses 4 and 5. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, Jerusalem that is, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden." We looked at that prophecy a few weeks ago, actually, in our Old Testament Minor Prophet series. That was in Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. God promised to send a king to Jerusalem, a king who would bring salvation and peace to his people. It's no wonder, then, that these crowds travelling along the road with Jesus to Jerusalem are excited. This is their long-awaited king, and that's also what they mean, by the way, when they call out to him, Son of David, verse 9. That the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna in Hebrew means save us, we pray. And Son of David is language that invokes a 1,000-year-old promise from God in Scripture to put this new king on the throne of King David to rule forever over the people of God. Uh, You can read it yourself in 2 Samuel 7 or in 1 Chronicles 17, if you're interested, that old promise from God. When he he said to David, uh, here's a verse, he said to David, when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons and I will establish his kingdom he shall build a house for me and I will establish his throne forever forever at the time of David when God said that it might have seemed to people as if God was talking about one of David's literal sons like like Solomon but God meant son as in descendant And here we are, a thousand years later, and these crowds walking along with Jesus know that full well as they cry out. Their Saviour King was now here. Hosanna, Son of David, save us, we pray, our forever King. We still celebrate this scene and and mark this scene in in our day today as Christians, a, a day that we call Palm Sunday. John's Gospel tells us that these branches here, more specifically, were were palm branches uh, from the date palm trees. Uh, And so we refer to this uh, event as as Palm Sunday on our calendar. It's there and we celebrate it. We think of it as Christians because Jesus is our king too. We don't think about that word though, Christian, or, or Christ even. We don't think about those words as much as we should. What do they mean? Well, to follow Christ is to follow a king. These first nine verses of our text make that clear. When God installed kings, by the way, to rule over his people, he had them anointed. To be anointed, in in its literal sense, means to have precious oil poured down over your head uh, to signify, mark your God-appointed role. In this case to be the king over his people and anointed by the way just happens to be literally what the word christ means or messiah if you prefer the hebrew that's what these words mean anointed and jesus's anointing i guess might have been direct and and spiritual from god rather than literal and symbolic with with oil Uh, but even so it seems pretty clear here in these first nine verses that that Jesus is the Christ, as we say, the Anointed One, because he is the King. These crowds seem to understand as much about Jesus. And five days later, as as we will reflect on at Easter time, that that's the main charge laid upon Jesus. If you know the story, isn't it? This is Jesus. King of the Jews, written on a plaque and nailed above his head as he was crucified. So here we are back in Matthew 21, coming from a long ministry in the country, Jesus is now heading into the holy city at at the centre of all this, Jerusalem, with an entourage travelling with him that seemed to catch the gravity of what's going on. Although maybe they're not all keyed in to the whole king thing because... The city folk from Jerusalem come out to meet them on the road and they ask the big question there in verse 10. Who is this? Who is this? And, and, and now in, in verse 10, mysteriously, uh, the entourage with Jesus introduce him uh, in response to that question as the prophet in verse 11. Oh, the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. There's no doubt Jesus was prophetic. I mean, he just demonstrated that pretty well, wouldn't you say, back in uh, verses 2 and 3. He knew exactly where his disciples should go for what was needed, what what they would find there, how they would find it, who they would encounter as they're doing this, what they need to say to that person for exactly the right outcome to fulfil, as it happens, another old prophecy about him. So, so yes, this is Jesus, the prophet. But maybe also what they mean by that is that Jesus is the long expected prophet from the promises of God from of old. You see, about one one and a half thousand years before Jesus rides in on these donkeys, God promised this. Uh, Through Moses, in Deuteronomy 18, God promised this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses said, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or, or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, Moses said, They are right in what they say. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Now, in a sense, that old promise in Deuteronomy foretold of all of God's prophets who were to follow Moses in the story of scripture. But in another sense, and in a deeper sense, it foretold of one prophet in particular who God would raise up to to speak to his people, his words, forever. Later on in Acts chapter 3, Peter actually, as he's preaching, he explains that even to the point that that all the other prophets that did come after Moses are also foretold of that one prophet who was to come. And some of the people in Jesus' day at least, some of them had been expecting it. They had even asked John the Baptist, if you remember, in John chapter 1, are you the prophet? No, he said. John was a prophet, surely, but not the prophet. So maybe that's what's going on in verse 11 with their answer in some of these people's minds, travelling with Jesus, that this at last is the prophet whom God had long foretold of. Prophet, by the way, uh, was a second office, a second of three offices for which God God, uh, anointed people in the Old Testament. So maybe Jesus is the Christ in that sense. Is he the prophet of God? Is that why he was anointed? Is that why we say Christ or Messiah? At the very least, a prophet. Without question, but but maybe to the prophet, like Moses, whom God had promised to raise up among the people. And then in the last part of our text, from verse 12, Jesus at last arrives in Jerusalem. And straight away, he enters the temple. Which is interesting. It makes me wonder a little bit about everything we've just been talking about, the king idea and the prophet idea that the crowds seem to be saying. Because isn't the temple associated with priests rather than with kings or with prophets? His first port of call, though, as he enters Jerusalem, is to go into the temple. And, and what unfolds in that last section is quite stunning And quite different to what we were reading so far of of all the fanfare and the excitement of his journey to get this far. He sets about now purifying the temple, calling it back to its purpose in verse 12. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer but you make it a den of robbers. Check out Isaiah 55 and 56 later is a good place to go if you want to get a sense as to why Jesus is upset with these people who are running the temple complex in his day. They're actually hindering people from coming to God. They're hindering people from coming to God. They're pursuing their own gain and their own status and their own place and they've corrupted the temple from its purpose in bringing people to God. So so Jesus starts driving these thieves, as he calls them, out of the temple. But who's he going to replace them with? Verse 14 might hold a clue. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Now, priests could examine the sick and the diseased and the inf- afflicted, uh, they could receive the, the offerings uh, that the sick or the diseased or afflicted brought forward, assuming that they could afford to bring some kind of offering forward, what with probably not having had any livelihood in, in their awful state, uh, let alone how the, uh, the people running the temple had put a commercial barrier in place that was kind of keeping people out, but... but but that's about all they could do, the priests. They, they, could, they could examine and they could declare clean or unclean and they could receive offerings. and. But this priest, if that's what Jesus somehow is, since the people are now coming to him in the temple, this priest healed them. He received them in and, and healed them. The priest, by the way, was the third of those three offices that uh, God had people anointed for in Old Testament times. And so I read this and I wondered to myself, maybe, maybe Jesus is the Christ, uh, the anointed one in, in this sense. Is he a priest? <laughs> At any rate, uh, everyone, everyone here is ecstatic, it would seem, except for the priests and their scribes. Because what with everything Jesus just did, uh, the children in the temple cry out again, "Hosanna, son of David, save us, we pray, our king," is almost as if to set us cycling back through those three options again, trying to think through again, who is Jesus? Who is this Christ? So which is it, do you think? Is Jesus a priest or a prophet or king? We're hoping to think through that question in in longer form in our new series next term after Easter. A series we'll call, I think, The Prophet, The Priest and The King. But I'm going to spoil the ending to that series right now by telling you what I think is going on here, even in this Palm Sunday text that we're reading. Jesus fulfills all three of those officers that were anointed by God, prophet, priest, and king. And so, as I say, I think when he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, as we call it, the Christ brought with him all of the longing of the Old Testament story. Here comes Jesus, the Christ, the compassionate priest, prophet like Moses, the saviour king. I may be kind of influenced by the fact that I know we're going to do that series on prophet, priest and king next term, but I may be seeing too much in this text for what's actually written here. To be honest, it's actually, if you stand back, it's actually a little bit mysterious how all these titles are kind of swirling around here with all these praise words kind of mixed in and thrown around. As Jesus enters Jerusalem, it's a little bit Mysterious. It's a little bit hard, therefore, to know exactly how all these things do hang together, certainly from this text. And even harder, therefore, for us to think about how these people understood all these things hanging together about Jesus. Maybe that they haven't quite got Jesus pegged yet is what's driving all the excitement and all the buzz. Something's going on, isn't there? That much is clear. And I may be getting carried away thinking about next term but if nothing else now you know what christ means now you know what messiah means and anointing and the son of david and hosanna so i thought maybe i could leave this text with you uh, with uh, those kinds of words in your mind go go and try to puzzle this out uh, for yourself over the week uh, heading into easter there's enough mystery here actually it's almost like matthew wants you to puzzle it out uh, and put the pieces together for yourself Whatever's going on in this this epic Palm Sunday scene, uh, the priests and the scribes who who knew the law and and taught and copied the Old Testament scriptures, well, well, they're outraged by what Jesus is doing and by what all these people are saying about him. But Jesus just leaves them hanging on these things. I, I love it, verse 17, leaving them... He went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. I want to park this Palm Sunday scripture then for the moment and park all these ideas about Jesus and what the Christ means and and go back in time one day, one day before this Palm Sunday and and into Bethany where Jesus was lodging. Bethany is a little village on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Uh, like Butler is to Perth, I guess, although everything then was on a much smaller scale. The scriptures tell us that Bethany was just two miles uh, from Jerusalem city itself. Jesus was staying there in Bethany, it would seem, from that verse and from other scriptures, while he preached to his disciples and and to these crowds who had followed him into Jerusalem and to all the people of Jerusalem now, uh, preaching over the next five days, and, and that takes up the next five chapters of Matthew's Gospel. But then in chapter 26... Matthew apparently recalls a scene from when Jesus had been in Bethany, the day before all of this stuff on Palm Sunday we just read through. And this mystery about who he is as the Christ opens up a whole lot wider, I reckon, because in Bethany, Jesus had been anointed. Very literally, he had been anointed and in a whole nother way to all this stuff we've just been thinking around. If you have your Bibles open, please turn Matthew 26 and verse 6. Matthew 26 and verse 6. Now when Jesus was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table when the disciples saw it they were indignant saying why this waste for this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor but Jesus aware of this said to them why do you trouble the woman for she has done a beautiful thing to me for you always have the poor with you But you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. It's been on my heart to preach on this scene today too because of that last bit there, that wherever the gospel is told in all the world, what, what this woman did will also be told. But even more so because of what it is that this woman does and perhaps what this woman understands about this Jesus the Christ because everyone else in the narrative through Matthew's Gospel seems to have latched on to something about Jesus, all kinds of things about Jesus that he at long last fulfills, not just in that Palm Sunday scripture we were looking at before, but all the way through. People have been cottoning on to Jesus in various kinds of ways. The Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Son of David, the King, the Priest, the Prophet, the Lord, the Teacher, and so on and so on. Everyone has some idea that means something to them but the one thing that Jesus has been at pains to explain through this narrative that that everyone seems to be missing except now perhaps this one woman is that he is here to die so he tells them that again here in verse 12 in pouring this ointment on my body She has done it to prepare me for burial. All the way through, Jesus has also been telling them very explicitly that he was going to Jerusalem with this one purpose, that he would be handed over to the religious leaders who would have him crucified. Several times Jesus has told them that, but they just don't seem to have cottoned on to to that part of his message. See it for yourself if you like. There's an example right before that story of the woman anointing him at the beginning of this, chapter 26. In chapter 26 in verse 1, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, you know, these five chapters of preaching to all the people from Jerusalem now too, when Jesus finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. That's pretty explicit. So too, there was an example just before that Palm Sunday text, back in Matthew chapter 20, right before that. Chapter 20 and verse 17, Jesus was going up to Jerusalem and and he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. What maybe nobody has been really getting their heads around yet, maybe this woman in Bethany has. In Mark's Gospel, we learn further that by very expensive ointment, we're talking 300 denarii. That is 300 days' wages, 10 months of labour. That's 40 grand in today's money, isn't it? She's not holding back with this anointing of Jesus, her Christ. Not holding back at all. In Mark's Gospel 2, Jesus literally uses that anointed word. He, he says in Mark's Gospel, "'She has anointed my body beforehand for burial.'" In John's Gospel, we're told that this woman was Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. We learn there too that this was was actually the day before Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, that that Matthew therefore must have been holding this story back until he'd finished the chapters on Jesus' teaching. John also tells us that one of the key people objecting to this anointing was Judas Iscariot, who would betray him, who was actually concerned not with the poor. He didn't care about the poor. He was concerned with what he might swipe for himself if they had have sold this ointment. But Jesus says she has done a beautiful thing for him. And that's really heavy in the context here. In fact, you can't really find the bottom of those words When you realise the context, that Jesus knew he was about to die. She has done a beautiful thing to me. She has prepared me for burial. Meanwhile, to the disciples, you're over there squabbling about money. Don't you get it yet? I won't always be with you. I am here to be crucified. And suddenly I thought, all that mystery stuff about the prophet and the priest and the king and, as he rode into Jerusalem, well, it can wait until next term, uh, to be perfectly honest, because this woman has actually anointed Jesus, the, the anointed one, the Christ, and, and anointed him for a role that, that nobody else yet in the narrative seems to understand. And maybe she doesn't even fully realise either, but Jesus is here to die. For our sin. He is the sacrifice that that the priest must offer up to atone for our sin before God. If he's going to become king of of a kingdom in which any of us can actually live. This is the word of God that he came and spoke to us as the prophet of God. That we are sinful wow how's that for a popular message we are sinful and such that he must die to pay for our sin so that we can become his people if we are all sinful friends then we need more than a prophet a priest and a king it occurs to me, as I think through these things this week, we need to have our sin dealt with. We need to have our sin atoned for by something that that will be once and full and final and forever. We need our sin dealt with and and Jesus is that atonement that that's what he has come. He has come to lay down his life for us as as a perfect and forever sacrifice that will appease God's wrath against our sin. This woman has just anointed him for that role. His body has now been prepared for burial. But the people around him aren't really going to get that part of all of this. Spoiler alert if you haven't finished reading the Gospels. They're not going to get that until after Jesus rises from the dead. Although maybe this woman, Mary, in in some way did get it. She, She anointed for burial our prophet, priest, and king. I think this part of the the Gospels, this bit about the week before Jesus' death, I think it's actually calling us to really try and figure out who Jesus is. To us. Who is he to us? How do we take him? How do we see him? How do we understand him? How do you understand this Christ idea? What does it mean to you to, to take the name Christian? Lord willing, as I say, we'll explore all of these different roles that Jesus seems to have fulfilled over the next few months, starting this Friday, of course, Good Friday, and, and then into next term. And let me plant that question for the next few months for, for you to think about in, in your own hearts. What does it mean to you to be a Christian? What, what exactly do you think the Christ is and does? But at the very least, think about just this much this much today. For everything else that Christ might mean, uh, Jesus says that this woman here in chapter 26, this woman is lining up with one thing that, that's crucial to it all. He came to die. And there's no escaping where that leads if you think it through to its logical conclusion. If you read these Gospels and think that through to its end. It says that you and I and everyone else in this world are sinful and can only be atoned for by Jesus dying. Otherwise, there's not really the need, is there, for Jesus to go through with this. But he does. He does go through with this. Having known all along and having been trying to explain it to people all along, he still goes through with this. He could well avoid it all. He knew it was all happening. He could have avoided it all. If, if there was any other way for us to be his people just stay in the country Jesus stay in Nazareth and build tables and chairs all your life eat well sleep well live a good life in the country Jesus but Jesus has ridden most decisively into Jerusalem and to die because there is no other way And that means, I am sorry to say, my friends, that means that we are all sinful to the extent that we can in no other way be saved. Hosanna then to the Son of David. Save us, we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you as always for your word to us in scripture and and the scriptures we're looking at today in this last week of Jesus before he did go to that cross and he went to that cross to die for our sin. Father, we know the gospel. We preach it here every week. We think about it and talk about it every week. We thank you, though, for the the mystery in our first reading that's woven all through there and all the things that people say about Jesus and think about Jesus and, and all the things he does seem to be for us. But thank you too for the sheer simplicity, on the other hand, of this second scripture, this this woman here at the end who in no uncertain terms anointed the anointed one for his burial. Father, we pray you do not let us hide from the ugly truth underneath that, that we must therefore be sinners who need you to save us this way. And so in Jesus' name and on account of what he has done, we pray that you would therefore take these scriptures and prepare us for this Easter coming up, prepare us with an honesty of our condition like we've never had before so that we can truly feel the weight of what Jesus did for us like we've never felt it before, so that we can glorify you for what you have done like we never have before. And so in Jesus' name then, we do pray all this. Amen.